0: Welcome, everybody, to another exciting edition of KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden. Today, I am joined by Ken DeHart. He is one of the most tenured teaching professionals in the country. He is the director of tennis at Silver Creek Valley Country Club in San Jose, California. The man has been teaching tennis for 50-plus years. And Ken had all started out at a small school in Kentucky You're a cross-country runner. You run by the tennis courts. You decide you might be interested in the sport. You go to Kmart. You buy a racket. You start playing tennis. Next thing you know, you're one of the most renowned teaching tennis professionals in the United States. Let's talk about those early days when you first kind of got introduced to the game.
1: It was very interesting. I uh, had never seen anyone play tennis before until I went to college. And I um, started playing with my roommate every day. And we actually went by. We had a lady tennis coach at the college that coached the men's team and the girls team. And I went over and asked her one day, "Can I hit with the team?" And she was nice enough, you know, said, "Sure, you can pick up balls and, you know, if we need somebody, we'll let you fill in." But uh, so I showed up every day, and would you know pick up balls in case I get hit with somebody. or So I showed up every day, and so she said, "How about if I give you uh, an assistantship if you clean up the courts and kind of work as like, you know, just coming around like that?" I said, it "Sounds great to me." So that was kind of the second semester of my freshman year, and I went to summer school so I could play tennis every day. And then my sophomore year, I got a, still couldn't beat many people, but I got a chance to travel with the men's team and the girls' team. And back then, we traveled. All the students would drive cars, and you got paid a mileage fee for driving. And I would drive with, ride with the coach, so I learned a lot about things, and I'd sit on the bench and she'd tell me what's going on. And so I started playing pretty well. And sophomore year, I was pretty good. My junior I actually uh, won the conference doubles championship at number 3 singles, or number 3 doubles, and um, the senior year I was captain of the team, most valuable player.
0: Wow. So this is, what, 66, 67, 68-ish, so the top players in the world, the guys you're looking up to, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the Poncho Gonzalez, kind of Jack Kramer, maybe Arthur Ashe era? Sure was, yeah.
1: In fact, later on, I got a chance to play an exhibition match with Poncho Gonzalez against Bobby Riggs and another pro. Wow. And uh, at the time, they had gotten a little bit older than me, fortunately. <laughs> but uh, Bobby had uh, been diagnosed with cancer, Ugh. prostate cancer, and Pancho was still playing quite a bit. But he had a Prince graphite racket, and he cut about four inches off the handle. And that's how he played. But we got a chance to play. I couldn't believe I was on the court with Pancho Gonzalez and Bobby Riggs.
0: Now, how much money did Bobby Riggs try to hustle you out of that day, I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> uh, he, was, he had no chance because I had no money. <laughs> well, so you were out in my neck of the woods. It sounds like you were about to say you
1: guys played in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. We did, yes. I'd gotten flown in to help do a clinic there uh, by a friend of mine. Um, at the time, our club in Arizona hosted the Ladies' National Hard Course, And this lady came and played every year. And she says, why don't you come to Steamboat Springs? We're doing this clinic. And you get a chance to it with Bobby Riggs and Billy. And uh, Poncho, I said, hey, I'll do that. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I'm sure they didn't have to twist your arm. So it sounds to me like
0: that may answer my next question. When we start to talk about who were some of the influences on some of the teaching pros in our country, i got to believe Poncho had something to do with it. i got to believe Bobby had something to do with it. Talk about who were the guys that sort of struck a chord with you, Ken, that, that that got you thinking that this is the way the game needs to be taught. This is the way the game needs to be played. And maybe a couple of these guys that that might be household names that took you under your wing and really kind of imparted some wisdom on you that you've then been able to impart on your students over the years.
1: Um, actually, believe it or not, it was actually Bill Tilden. Uh, a friend of mine gave me a book about Bill Tilden. It was called Match Play and Spin of the Ball. Written about 1948. Okay. And if you read the book, it's exactly correct for today's game too. Bill was an innovator and uh, aspiring actor. He did some movies and stuff like that again, but he was the tennis pro for all the um, actors in the world and actually worked did a lot of work with uh, almost all the famous actors. But uh, my real hero as I started to study the game was actually Jimmy Connors. I loved his passion and intensity for the way he played the
0: game. You know, he was very long and very flat, and obviously he had, uh, uh, his racket spent a lot of time in the hitting zone, and the game has changed so much. But what could, what could players in this day and age, take from the way Jimmy hit the ball that would still hold up on the courts, particularly with the players, maybe not necessarily the guys that are trying to be top 200 players in the world or maybe even D1 because the the, the swing patterns and swing shapes seem so very different from what Jimmy did. But what could country club players learn uh, from what Jimmy did that would still hold up today?
1: Well, I think, Andy, you and I both know as coaches that everything starts from the ground up. Whatever shows up at top as an error is a product of what the feet did down below. And Jimmy was incredible with his footwork. And even his approach to the game, he, Jimmy hardly ever practiced more than an hour and a half. He said, why would I practice four hours? Practice in an hour and a half with the highest intensity you can possibly play and then get off the court. So he wasn't a big believer in spending you know, four hours out there and bragging about he spent four hours in the sun. But he was more intense, like, like he played his matches, with intensity. Uh, extreme amount of effort and focus, focus when he played. So I love that. I loved how he um, moved into everything. He played things on the rise, um, quite stubborn, like most people. And once again, he was taught by his mom. And later on, she got him to do a few lessons with Pancho Segura. But if you really look back, a lot of the top players in the world were actually taught or encouraged to get in the game with their mother as opposed to their father.
0: Well, there's no doubt that Gloria Connors uh, is legendary, as one of the most kind of heavy-handed tennis moms that our sport has ever known, but obviously Jimmy doesn't seem to look back on it with any negativity because he, you know she brought him to where she did. Now, would that relationship work in the game today, in your opinion, Ken?
1: It would take someone with a certain personality. I think most any situation can work if the personality of the person being coached like that would work. We've seen bad examples like Andre Yeager's father, uh, you know, the things he did and some of the other pros out there and uh, even Pova's dad, a little bit, people like that again. Uh, we've seen some with Donald Young and his mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it takes a special chemistry to work like that. And I think we all know it is if you're a parent who's had a child and you try to work with them, I'm very fortunate. My son just finished calling me a while ago talking about his game and he's going to play a tournament this weekend. And he still asked me for advice, but there was a period between 12 and 17 years of age that I was really stupid. And I told him when he was younger, I said, I realize you're, you're about to enter your teenage years. I realize for the next six years, I'm going to be really stupid, but I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to love you. And he thought for a minute. And he says, you know, Dad, I'm going to try to like you anyhow. And about 18, he started liking me again.
0: So is that does that fall under the category, in your opinion, Ken, of it would be a perfect world if parents parented, coaches coached, and players
1: played? Without a doubt, yeah. Too many parents, and I see it you know at the park at the club where the parents are the kids don 't even take lessons from the pros because the parent does it, but he has like no clue what he 's doing, and pretty much just yell at the kid and say, "Do this, do this." Uh, I was always able to kind of separate that parent coach thing as much as I could, and so that made our relationship pretty good but it's it 's a tough one to do because you know you think you know best, and you were trying to do the best you can for your own child. We all want to do that, every parent does a lot of times we 're we don't know enough to really know that what we know isn't really what we need to know.
0: My guest today on KickServeRadio.com, Tennis On Air with Andy Zoden, is the one and only Ken DeHart. He is the director of tennis at Silver Creek Valley Country Club in San Jose, California, and he is one of the most experienced and tenured and well-respected teaching tennis professionals in the United States. Ken, do you think that getting back to this tennis parent conundrum, that people may be took what they saw from Richard Williams and saw what became of Venus and Serena and maybe mistook that for something that would ever happen again <laughs> when you and I both know that that is just, it's, it's, it would be more likely to win the Powerball twice than to have that work out the way it did. And people thought, well, this is the way Richard did it. This is the way I'm going to do it. When in fact, that was a lightning strike that we'll, we'll never see again in our lifetime.
1: No, it's totally an anomaly to have someone be able to do that. It takes a special, unique environment, Compton, a special, unique situation with his children um, to do that, and a special, unique relationship with what he thought versus what the USTA and everybody else thought. And, um, you know, like I said, you said, you can go through history and find uh, anomalies like that, but you have to be careful. Like when, even like like when Bjorn Borg came on the scene, I was like, let's play like Borg. Well, he's an anomaly. Nobody played like him or moved like him to really hit the ball like he did or like Jimmy who hit the ball so flat and so hard. So people see things and think they, they can do it, but almost all the top-level athletes play so differently and uh, they, they were taught differently.
0: And in my early years of teaching tennis, which was the early 80s, along comes John McEnroe and he changes everything with regard to the way we teach the volley today. Uh, Ken, if, if somebody was to say, you know, Give me, in, in two sentences, what is the Ken heart philosophy of teaching tennis uh, and, and, and how do you impart that on your students? What are some of the things that you think are important as sort of the building blocks and the foundation for a game with, let's say, an average to slightly above average
1: athlete? Because by and large, that's what we deal with for the most part. It is, Andy, yes. Um, mine's more, I've learned a lot because I have a master's degree at, at, uh, in education and I realized as a basketball player that um, I never understood what my coach said. He'd say, I had to move your feet. You got to want it. You got to go for it. You got to be patient. And I, I was so, I wanted to be a basketball player so bad, but I had no idea what the heck he was talking about. And eventually if I, he stopped yelling at me, I figured I must have figured it out because he stopped yelling at me. So people talk in one of my presentations, they talk about how to improve your communication to improve your player skill levels. So think about how many times as a coach, you've told someone, come over here. I said, have you ever seen an over here? Where is over here? If you said, go to the Discord court service line or I'll meet you at the ad court service box. Why do you think people don't come in fast? Because they're even not even sure where it's supposed to be. When you say, don't swing so hard, ask what? Move your feet more than what? So what I always understood is if I could ask a question at the end of what I ask, I didn't tell them the right thing. So what I've tried to do a lot is do uh, word pictures. For example, if you're moving your feet, I'd say, move your feet. And so the kid jumps up and down. But I said, try to take two more steps between each ball you hit. That's measurable. Moving your feet is not measurable. It didn't tell you which way to move it or how much to move. It. If I said, don't swing so fast, I would say, look, on a scale of um, one to five, show me how fast you can swing and hold your racket as tight as you can. All right, now go to level four. Now go to three. Now go to two. Now go to one. Where did you feel most comfortable? So that way, when they made a mistake, I would say, what was your grip pressure? What was your swing speed? And it's measurable instead of saying, don't hit the ball so hard. So most of the stuff that coaches talk about aren't really measurable, but the student figures out what the coach really meant to say.
0: So in your opinion, it sounds like coaches need to operate with a greater level of specificity with regard to making those adjustments and don't just say move your feet but could you be more specific well what i need you to do for this particular ball is i need you to side shuffle Uh, in this situation i need you to back pedal and in this particular case i need you like the brian brothers to just keep your engine running
1: sure but i found an even easier way um if you put a cone out and at the club we the kids have named all the cones that we use george because george foreman had five kids Okay. Name them all George. Yep. George. George, 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 George. Uh, I remember. George that. So if you put a cone out and say, look, I want you to do a forehand ground stroke and circle the cone, it takes them eight to 12 steps to get around the cone. Okay. Now, I can't tell them how to do that. Most players move in, stop, hit, back up, stop, hit, move in. When actual players actually move in a slight elliptical motion or in a small circle, that's how they're able to keep the feet in motion. So I tell the kids, I can't teach you to move, but George can. And if you step on George, he becomes your stepbrother. Okay. So if you do funnyisms, you do funnyisms. they remember Like when you, when a player moves and stops, they lean over. So your name becomes Eileen. Interesting. So I said, don't make me call you Eileen. So they learned to move through the ball. And I said, now, if George works, Eileen will never show up. So you teach in word pictures rather than specifics. Now, I understand all the technical stuff, but I never talk in terms of technical skills. Okay. It's only visual skills and kinesthetic skills or reference skills. So my stories or my teaching is quite different. When, uh, there's only three ways you can lose a point in a match. Hit the ball in the net. Who has to pick up the ball? You do. Hit the ball out. Who picks it up? The opponent does. Or I, the other opponent's, hit, the opponent's a winner. But if I could eliminate all the balls in the net, you've improved your game by 30%. So how can you lose to a three-foot midget that's 42 feet wide and doesn't move?
0: It's a great way to look at it. Ken, before I let you go and our time has flown by, if uh, you were to get a phone call from Martin Blackman, who, as we both know, is the director of USTA Player Development, and he said, Ken, you know, I, I want to pick your brain on identifying this, what's wrong with American tennis? What do our players do too much of, not do enough of? Where? where what have you identified with what you've seen with our players on the tour uh, both on the men's and women's side, that you feel like we're either deficient with or there's an overabundance of? And if it was just one thing that you had to say, I think, fill in that blank for me.
1: I think there's too much academy tennis uh, where there's a lot of drilling without a lot of match play situations. And in fact, we've identified at the high-performance going USA USA high-performance coaching classes, you can spot a player who's been sent to an academy because they actually over-move the feet up and down instead of moving athletically. So academy tennis is kind of prevalent. And I'd say the other thing is, in most countries, number the number two sport in the country is tennis. And in the United States, where is it? It's down there.
0: Interesting. He is Ken Hart. He is a USPTA Master Professional, a PTR Master Professional, and Hall of Famer. And, again, one of the most tenured, experienced, and respected Tennis professionals in the country Ken, I really appreciate you taking the time I hope that this is one of several visits That we get to do uh, With kickserveradio.com Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden Thank you so much and I really appreciate you uh, you Joining me tonight
1: Anytime you can get, we can get together I look forward to, to the information out there And help everybody have a fun time